Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art Scoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from artists to writers to museum directors. It's a pleasure to spend some time today speaking with Melissa Chu, director of the Smithsonian's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, the National Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art. Since her appointment in 2014, she's ensured that the Hirshhorn is a vital home for contemporary art through exhibitions, acquisitions, and public programs. Under her leadership, the Hirshhorn has presented landmark exhibitions of work by some of the world's most important contemporary artists, including Shirin Nashat, Robert Irwin, Yayoi Kusama, and Charlene von Heil, and has commissioned site-specific artworks that connect with the museum's unique architecture, such as a piece by Lynn Myers and an installation by Mark Bradford. While making significant additions to the museum's collections of European and American post-war art to include examples of global modernism, among many other accomplishments. A native of Australia, Dr. Chu earned her bachelor's degree in art history and criticism from the University of Western Sydney in 1992 and her master's degree in arts administration in 1994 from the University of New South Wales. She completed her PhD with a dissertation on contemporary Chinese art at the University of Western Sydney in 2005. She's written and edited several books and catalogs on contemporary art, including Contemporary Art in Asia, A Critical Reader, and has lectured at Harvard, Yale, Columbia, the Museum of Modern Art, and other universities and museums worldwide. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you for having me, Max. Just to start off, how are you doing? Is your family doing okay? Everything's fine. Thank you for asking. <laughs> sure. Speaking of family, you have a twin sister. She had excelled in conventional academic subjects in school, and partly in response, you decided to follow a different path and a path into the art world. Is that fair to say? And is she okay? And what is she up to? It's fair to say. And she is living in Australia. And by all accounts, things are okay in Australia. They're reopening. And so she and her family are doing well. If I think to my own childhood, I think that our family, we in fact had two sets of twins in our family, four girls, with only two years between the two sets of twins. We were all very close in age. And so each of us tried to carve out some space for ourselves. And my own twin sister, she, she was rather good at academic studies. She really excelled in English and math. So art and ancient history were two of the areas where I really enjoyed history and I enjoyed art. And maybe that's probably why I ended up with art history, some kind of um, merging of the two. But that was kind of, you know, I mean, it's family politics, right? And right. there's always uh, sibling issues in terms of wanting to find your own pathway, but also space within the family. And I think that I was able to find art, you know, in a way I was fortunate to have been able to find an affinity with the subject that I enjoy and was able to grow into. Yeah, I think we're all actually fortunate that you did. <laughs> Speaking of <that> <laughs> I don't know about that. But... <laughs> but just one more question about your childhood, because something formative happened when you were two. You endured Cyclone Tracy in Australia on a Christmas morning. It was the worst hurricane in Australia's history and destroyed fully 70% of the homes in the town of Darwin, including your own. And I'm just curious if that experience 
shape the way you contextualize the pandemic and the disaster we're in today? Well, it's a funny thing because as I look back, you know, I also lived in New York during 9-11 and then subsequently Hurricane Sandy and, and this pandemic is a terrible thing and many people have been affected. I think if anything affected me most, it was from Cyclone Tracy and as a young child, we moved around a lot after that because the story, as the story goes, my parents had just finished building their house on Christmas Eve and then it was just promptly destroyed and the only belongings we ended up with were the documents that my mother had saved and put in a briefcase and sat on during the hurricane coming through that evening and into the early hours of the morning. And so that was what we were kind of left with. And so the whole idea of, in some ways, possessions and owning things and being, I think, grounded in a place if I look back on it from that moment and then the moment, other moments in my life that I've moved, relocated, there are many of them. And so I feel like I don't really have strong attachment to things or places. And so in a way, a museum is the perfect place for me because people always say to me, oh, you know, don't you want to own that work of art? You know, you how you see a great work of art, don't you want to own it? And it's usually a collector who asks those kinds of questions. Sure. And, you know, I always respond with, well, no, for us in the museum world, it's not really owning. That's not what it's about. It's about either wanting to work with that artist to create something new or for it to enter the museum collection so that it can be shared with the public. And so I think if anything, that idea of the destruction of the family home and then relocating and then relocating multiple other times has meant that that uh, attachment to ownership is maybe less pronounced for me. The career as a curator was your formative first step in the early 90s, and then you moved on to be a director in Sydney. Give a sense, if you would, of the flavor of Sydney's cultural landscape. So I came of age at a really interesting moment in Australia's history. It had already kind of assumed this idea of a multicultural country. And when I was coming of age at my university days, it was a moment at which Australia had decided in a political and economic way to face Asia. You have to understand that before that, the cultural affinities were really towards Britain and the US. So when this happened in the 1990s, there was a really a realignment culturally of Australia. And so I, in a way, was a beneficiary of this moment. And it was also at a time when my father's Chinese, my mother's Australian, that that kind of cultural background was able to take on a greater significance. And so I began to travel throughout the Asia Pacific region for artist residencies and exhibitions and exhibition tours that we would put together. And so it was a really interesting cultural moment that I think probably won't ever happen again. Mm -hmm. And it was also an environment that was incredibly well-funded from the Australian government. And so much more like a European system. However, the organization that I co-founded with artists 
was one that was privately supported and publicly supported as well as a public-private initiative. And so that gave me, I think, some insights into when I transitioned to New York and to the US system of fundraising. It was a very different environment in Sydney because it was mostly publicly funded. Right. And that was in 2004 that you came to the States as director of Asia Society's Museum. Having been already its curator of contemporary Asian and Asian American art, you were mm -hmm. promoted. Can you give a sense about your initiative then to launch a contemporary art collection within a museum that was well known for its Rockefeller collection of earlier Asian art? Yes, it was a big step for the institution, actually. The Asia Society was founded in 1956 by John D. Rockefeller III. It was an institution that was really well known for its collection of antiquities from Mr. and Mrs. Rockefeller's private collection. And there had been many efforts under the leadership of Vishaka Desai to start to incorporate contemporary art through exhibitions mostly and public programs and other ways. And then when I became director, I really started to think that to build a collection, and it didn't need to be an expansive collection, but one that was true to that particular moment in time, that it would reflect the commitment on the part of the institution to be in the present and to reflect its programming up until that moment in contemporary art. And so we embarked on the beginnings of a collection and we decided to focus in on video art because I had felt very strongly that it needed to be a very focused collection. And that was where artists in Asia were really doing some of the most compelling and interesting work. And you kept your finger very much on the pulse of creativity overseas as Asia Society's Vice President of Global Art Programs. So you oversaw planning of museum facilities for its Hong Kong location, as well as in Houston. But I'm curious, given the pandemic, do you have different expectations about future international outposts for leading museums? It's an interesting question because a lot of people today are questioning globalization. Has it come to an end? Are we all going to work in a more localized fashion now that we're coming out of a quarantine, self-quarantine moment? I think that the idea of having institutions that have a home base and then different branches and centers is useful. I think that there are a lot of synergies, but also local differences that are played out in that kind of relationship. I've always been a big advocate for a more global perspective just because of where I've come from. And so I actually don't see it as a moment of localization. I see it as the same, but written very differently. And so we might, on the one hand, not necessarily all be doing these large-scale international loan shows so much right at the moment. But maybe there are other ways that museums can partner together to produce virtual exhibitions or public programs in a different way. I'm reflecting on the fact that this week we had our first Zoom public program at the Hirshhorn. And it was so interesting because we had 580 attendees, which is twice our auditorium capacity, and we had people from really all around the world, including India, for which it would have been 4 a.m. 
bedtime. So I think that, you know, that it's just, I feel like it's just going to be refracted differently, perhaps, but there, there's no way we can kind of wind it back. There's no putting the genie back in the bottle. We all have connections around the world and beyond our home city or place where we currently live. So I, I'm optimistic on it, on the whole idea of a global perspective. Of course, a global perspective in your hands, especially at the Hershorn, where you've been for six years and you're now planning a renovation of its historic building by Gordon Bunshaft. Has COVID-19 influenced your thinking these last several weeks about common spaces and circulation and public functions of the museum? There's no doubt that welcoming back the public to a museum will be very different at a time when people need to social distance. As to future designs, while one needs to be mindful of it, I think I'm also optimistic of the fact that there will be a moment at which we can come together in group gatherings again. We do have a sculpture garden which is outside and a plaza which is outside. And so we feel like these moments and the kind of coming back to museums may be less tense if we're able to do more outside events as well. So we're kind of thinking about outside spaces as a way of mitigating some of the issues towards gathering inside in large numbers. How are you thinking about your exhibition program at the moment at the Hirshhorn? Well, I think most museums are rethinking their exhibition program completely. We had two major exhibitions scheduled for the spring where moving dates when we reopen our building we'll then be able to evaluate when we can really launch them again in terms of the longer term outlook i think it is a moment at which most museums are really focusing in on their collections in a major way and i think that's a good thing i mean there's been a lot of talk recently about the operational burdens of collections, meaning that so much of the museum's resources go towards the care and maintenance of collections. And so I actually think it's a great thing to be returning to a museum's collection and finding new insights and generating new curatorial scholarship about them. That's really the forecast for the medium and long term is a return to museum collections. And speaking of scholarship, you're one of a few contemporary art museum directors with a doctorate. I'm curious how important formal training has been in shaping your approach to the field. I undertook a PhD in Chinese contemporary art. And for me and the work that I was doing as a curator, it was an important part of being able to understand what it meant to do a long-term project. It took me a long time to complete it because I had moved to New York in midstream in writing my dissertation. So for me, it was really important and it allowed me, I think, to really do a number of shows that were spin-offs from that research, whether it was a solo exhibition of Zhang Huan's work, who was a Chinese artist who had lived some time in New York, or even an exhibition of art of China's cultural revolution. And that really came to me from many of the interviews that I had done with Chinese contemporary artists who now are very well known. But when I was interviewing them for my PhD, 
all of them had said the same thing, which was if you really want to understand my work, you have to go back to the Cultural Revolution. And so that kind of, it, it really did in some way provide a foundation for a lot of my curatorial work. We are not in a cultural revolution in our country, but we are in something. And <laughs> you run what is fairly described as the National Museum of Modern and Contemporary Art at a time when America's image overseas is quite compromised. And I'm curious how you make a case for your mission at a time when our national polity is so fractured. We always like to say that we're the National Museum of Modern Art, but with an international outlook. And it is true to say that the Hirschhorn's history was always very international. Now, when the museum was founded nearly 50 years ago, international really meant European and maybe a little bit of Latin America. And today, that international outlook, of course, is much broader. I think what we've tried to do in terms of our programming focus is to identify timely issues that artists can reflect on in a compelling way. And so one of the current exhibitions is all about artists' manifestos. And the idea was that we are in this new kind of political identity. And I mean that in the sense that we haven't seen such an identity politics in the art world since 1993. And how do we account for it? How do we talk about it with a historical viewpoint? And we, so we organized an exhibition, curated it around the idea that artists had, for at least since the early 20th century, been involved in the sense of politic. And it was a really interesting exhibition and one that ends with Zoe Leonard's I Want a President poem. I think at the museum, we're focused on these topical issues of this moment in time, but often reflecting either an international perspective or outlook, or even perhaps a cast of our eyes backwards to that recent history of the 20th century. And you're living in the moment in day-by-day -day decisions as a result of the economic impact of the pandemic. The Smithsonian Secretary, Lonnie Bunch, has taken a pay cut, as you have, in part to help preserve jobs, which he's managing to do for now. Given your international background, are you seeing any cracks in our conventional nonprofit donor-supported art museum models? Is there a need down the road to insulate museums from economic shocks like the one we're enduring? It's an interesting question because I think the U.S. system of museum funding is an anomaly around the world. I can't think of another country that has such a depth of private philanthropy that supports museums, that helps museums in the absence of government funding. So it's an unusual system here. It's very different from everywhere else. The current situation, which is much worse than the last financial crisis, will impact museums to a greater degree than we have ever seen before. There's no doubt. I think that at the AMD meetings, there was always the question of what will be the disruption for museums, knowing that most other industries have been disrupted in a major way this century. And so the discussion was always, would it come from millennials? Would it, you know, mm -hmm. would it come from audiences? Where was it going to come from? And I think that this is it. This pandemic is that disruption. And so how we come out of this, how we address the financial implications of it in 
a country that is mostly supported through private philanthropy, there is no doubt that some museums, as with all fields, may not survive. One of the other issues that has come up often is about the ways in which museums represent people and identities and cultures. The movement towards what's been called decolonization, stripping away a premise around collection forming, which, as you said, the Hirshhorn itself was born of, in some respects, of a European-facing vision mm -hmm. of museology. How do you see that cultural politics playing out? Yes, up until the pandemic, that was the major focus for most museums. It was addressing the imbalance within collections and exhibitions. Now, I think a lot of museums are actually fighting for their survival. So I think that we're all optimistic and hopeful that that work will continue because it was important work in terms of really changing the kinds of artists that they show, the way they show it, how they show it. I think these were all very important to mission. Right now, we have an issue around survival. And often when that comes into play, everything else recedes um, to a less important issue. But I think enough was started. I think that there is a great deal more awareness of issues around representation, which was really at the heart of it. And so I'm hopeful that that work can continue. And we are certainly still remain focused on it. Having said that, the next 18 months, two years is probably a moment of pause in truly ambitious programming. So if museums turn to research and scholarship of their collections, but with a new eye to new discoveries of different kinds of artists with different approaches towards gender and race, then that would actually be very helpful. That would be moving things along in a very meaningful way. And you've used, for example, performance art as a means to express some of these issues, like a procession led by Theaster Gates and his Black Monks of Mississippi. What do you think might have to change as participatory experiences are in jeopardy for now as a result of social distancing? It's true that performance art in terms of an audience will be on pause for the moment. But it's funny, I just had a conversation with Laurie Anderson who was scheduled to open her major exhibition at the Hirshhorn next week. And we're talking about performances that will be filmed and then broadcast mm -hmm. to, to potentially an even larger audience. So I think it will be all about how we look at this and how we're able to share it in the coming months, because it's not as if artists don't want to create work and it's not as if people don't want to keep seeing it. It's just going to be a, how, how creative can we mm -hmm. be with the technology that we have available to us. And you've been very thoughtful about using digital platforms to connect audiences with your collections and programs. Are you, in light of what you and Laurie were talking about, are you seeing going forward some fresh platforms or models that you'd like to experiment with? Well, there's no doubt that Zoom is now the new verb. It's hmm. like Google Zoom. So... We're kind of all navigating Zoom as one way, but of course there are many other platforms that people are using, whether it's Facebook Live or Instagram Live. 
what most interests me is the ability now to reach audiences and connect with people who we wouldn't have ordinarily given our focus on our building and what we did in the building. And so a large part of my thinking right now is how can we fully realize a virtual museum? We've been talking about it for so long, but what does it really mean today? And maybe for the first time, we have some technology available to us to be able to do that. My hope is that as this continues and people have a greater comfort with using technology than before, that it will become easier and more interactive, more accessible for greater numbers of people to connect with museums and connect ultimately with art. Melissa, thank you for making time for today's discussion. How can our listeners best follow you online? Through the Hershorn website and also I have an Instagram account, Melissa W. Chu. Prepare for at least two or three more followers after. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for participating today. Thank you, Max. We've been speaking today with Melissa Chu, director of the Smithsonian's Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Art Scoping. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow the show at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts if you care to, which helps other listeners find their way to us.